Well, good morning, church family. Good morning. I appreciate the patience of you all. I know this is way past the time that we normally start. We did get caught in traffic, um, so I do apologize. And my prayer uh, today is that somehow the Lord would... Um, would help me because I think somewhere down the line my brain might have got caught in traffic and so I really want to um, on, honest, all, on honesty I really uh, want to solicit your prayers so I'm going to intentionally be a little more brief today than, um, than I originally intended but I want to make sure that what we hear today is truly a blessing to you so before I even start to launch in any kind of odd sermon illustrations would you mind uh, bowing your heads for just one more word of prayer before we start our gracious and kind Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you as people who need so much to be able to hear your voice, who need so much to be able to experience a true change in our lives. And I pray, Lord, I do not pray uh, that we should see the results of discipline and study today. I do not pray that we should see the results of our own uh, characters pouring forth, but I pray for a miracle today. I pray, Lord, that you would bring to us that miracle of changing our hearts that miracle of helping us to care about the things that you've spoken to us, that miracle of truly loving you, Lord, uh, from the bottom of our hearts, Lord, to the depths of our very being, to truly love you and to have uh, a nature like our Lord Jesus. And I ask for this blessing in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 All right, brothers and sisters, here we go. So this week I was um, taking a look at something that I study very often, and that has to do with, uh, with how the mind works. It's a field of study that I'm very interested in. It happens to be what I majored in. It's kind of what I do for a job. And so um, I definitely have an interest there, but I was very interested in how this uh, pertains to, um, to our walk in Christianity. Now, up there you'll see a, a very strange-looking picture, and that, uh, does anybody roughly know what that seems to be shaped like? The brain. The brain. Okay, all right. So that wasn't a mystery to anyone. Now, all those little uh, strands and wires that you see there are actually um, pathways in the brain. And they go all throughout the brain like some sort of wiring network. Now, this is just a, a kind of a crude overview of how many wires and connections there are because the, the connections themselves are, are incredibly thin. That's because like the... the the little cell that makes up the vast majority of your brain, the neuron, which some of you may have heard of before, is like a nanometer. I mean, like it's this, or a micrometer. It's very, very tiny. It's, it's, you need an electron microscope to see it. And yet, because of the way that God has designed our brains, uh, our brains don't just work with a whole bunch of individual neurons that just have their own particular functions. They work in concert with one another. To say this differently, uh, your experience of being able to see and perceive the things around you is not the result of a single instrument playing, but an entire orchestra that has to be playing in precision. Now, the precision is quite, uh, is quite remarkable. You, can anybody kind of see that picture there? Can you, uh, you may not be able to tell, but those are wires that are put into this uh, computer. It was called the Cray-1. It is a supercomputer that was created. And this computer has... Um, has thousands of wires, each one of them in various kinds of lengths, and they connect. And when you, if you did end to end with all the wires, anybody want to take a guess at how long the wires are? If you put them end to end all the way across, it, uh, it's it's 67 miles of wiring. Every single one has to be plugged in precisely for the computer to operate. If any one of them is off, the whole system begins to crash and fail. Now, if you think that's impressive, I'm going to go back to this one. In your brain, you have 100 billion neurons. And from those 100 billion neurons, you have many of them with many, many branches. And some of the neurons, as small as they are, they can connect from one side of your brain to the other. Now, just to put that in proportion, I mean, this is like the equivalent of having a, uh, a tree with a branch that wraps around the world several times. I mean, this is uh, incredible, the, the amount of stuff that God has going on in your brain. Now, instead of just having a path, if you put them end to end, that goes 67 miles, it actually goes millions of miles. Millions of miles, all wired together in your brain. And it's very sensitively wired. Now, I'm going to say something that probably might hit some people on a personal level, and I don't mean to, um, to put you in that kind of position unnecessarily. But anybody who um, has known somebody that's had Alzheimer's, dementia, and other kinds of diseases, when the brain begins to degrade, that person begins to disappear. And the reason why is because all those, those connections, that wiring, that, that very sensitive system, 
when it begins to break down, the person begins to disappear in parts. They can still eat, talk, drink, and move around, but the memories begin to fade. The ability to function begins to fade. You begin to see like stemming reflexes where the hand kind of grips and it won't let go most of the time. It's kind of what, what we used to do when we were babies. You know, you put your finger on a baby's hand and they'll, and they'll grip your hand. Those, all those little reflexive things start to come back. And the self, the I, begins to disappear. And so when we say something as broad as I believe, it became obvious to me that it's a good question to ask, well, what parts of you? Because it's very easy to, to make almost what can be constituted as a superficial connection to God. I believe God wants every single one of those wires connected to him. Not just like 30% of them. And that makes a tremendous difference for the kind of people that we are when we come to church. If we're contextually based, you know, I remember somebody used a really humorous illustration. You know, you ask children when they're in Sabbath school who's, the, who's their favorite hero, they say Jesus. You ask the same child when they're on the playground who their favorite hero is, and they say Spider-Man. The context has changed the belief. I'm sure you all can piece that together. So today we're going to look at uh, this, this idea of I believe and what I think we need, brothers and sisters, is a whole-souled religion. Can y'all say that with me? A whole-souled religion. It's more effective to say, when you speak about yourself, it's, uh, I wouldn't say a we statement would be necessary, but there are so many things going on inside of you. I really uh, believe that what God said is true, that man cannot really know himself. Well, as, uh, as it says in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? There's so many things going on inside of us, brothers and sisters, that in order to commit ourselves to God would actually require a miracle. Because I don't even think we know how big that question is to commit our whole selves. So happy Sabbath, everyone. We're going to take a look in the Bible, and uh, you can all guess where we're going first. Um, so we'll go to Genesis, yes. Uh, somebody, somebody caught on to my... Um, Obsession with Genesis. So that will be our first place that we're going today. And just as a side note, when you consider the complexity of what it means to be a self or an individual, you, you quickly should be able to realize that the idea that you believe in yourself is kind of a silly thing to say. Because which self are you talking about? Are you talking about the happy self that wants to prove a point in argument? Or are you talking about the depressed self that kind of wishes he was dead? Which one of those do you believe in? And I believe the only way to find a stable thing to believe in is to believe in God, because God tells us in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, I am the Lord, I change not. It is the only stable thing upon which we can rest our faith. To put our faith in self is to put our faith in a very, very leaky boat, as, uh, as our own messenger had said. Okay, so you all there in Genesis? All right. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2. I apologize, I certainly did not say where we were going. So, um, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 17. And we're going to notice a couple of things about how God made man. So, actually, I know we've read these verses a million times. We'll jump up to verse uh, 7, and then we'll come back down to 17. So, is everybody there in Genesis chapter 2? All right, can everybody hear me okay? Because sometimes I talk, and then I talk fast, and then I talk low, and so, you know... Please help me out. I'm going to check in with you all to make sure that we're all on the same page. So Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man from where? From the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils, what, everyone? The breath of life, and man became, what, everyone? A living soul. Brothers and sisters, when God made man, it also says he made man in a peculiar kind of way. So if you're still there, I'm just going to read from, uh, for you in your hearing verse 26. Now, in verse 26, you have God saying, Let... Us make man how? In our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over the creeping thing and uh, that creepeth on the earth. Now I want you to notice something. When God refers to himself, when he makes man, what does he say? 
let us. Now you'll notice that when God made everything else, did you know that that is totally unique, that this is the only time that you find in the whole Genesis account that God makes an us statement about who he is and not a just singular statement of, and God did something. Now we know that Elohim, the word God, could be plural, but nevertheless, in this particular context here, it's very interesting that this is the place where God decides to reveal that God is one, but God is more than one. Does that kind of make sense to everyone? And so... God makes man in his image. And we are to be just like God. When he made us, he made, him, he made us like himself in nature, in, his, in our very nature. That was God's intent for us. So when we look at this thing today, this is just by way of introduction, but when we look at this thing today, we're going to be looking at three ways in which the Lord asks us to commit ourselves to him. So the first one is with thy whole mind. I put up there conscious awareness, but I'm not going to get into all the scientific gobbledygook. Um, it's not as interesting as the word of God is, but it's there. Uh, so the whole mind, so looking at the conscious awareness, the second level is the whole soul that is like the emotions and our, our instincts to be connected one with another. And then the last one with the whole heart, that is with the very instincts that drive you. Okay, so if I ask you, brothers and sisters, what are some basic instincts you have? What are some things that you want that no one had to tell you to want? Food, all right, what else? Water, sleep, yes, anything else? Yes, yes, and there's one other thing that probably no one's going to mention, and I'll just say that, uh, yeah, love, and then um, what helps us to have children. Does everybody put that one together? Okay. Most of the time, no one teaches you to want that. We try to teach our teenagers to wait. We don't have to teach them to think about it. They just kind of do that without, without our permission. Um, and that's too bad. But nevertheless, we all have instincts. We have instincts that work on a certain level. And what I want to suggest to you that conversion cannot just stop with the awareness. And it can't really even just stop with just the emotions. Conversion has to go all the way down to where, brothers and sisters? To the instincts or to the, the very nature. I wish I would have put nature instead of instincts. That would have been a better uh, way to phrase that. But what we're going to see is that every step along the way requires the same thing that made us. And we were not made, brothers and sisters, by slow processes and chance. We were made by design. Or to say it even differently, we were made by a miracle. Because I haven't seen anyone take a bunch of dust and organize it just such that it becomes a conscious human being. You go ahead and give that one a shot. Now, I've seen people borrow some of God's tools and synthesize and make some sort of Frankenstein creepy looking thing, but they have not found a way from dust to make life. And until they do that, I will not be persuaded that uh, we were not made by miracle. All right, brothers and sisters, so we're going to look first at the idea of the whole mind. So everybody is still there in Genesis? All right, so let's take a look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17. And I want you to try to get a sense of where this commandment is directed towards, what part of uh, the being it's directed towards. And there's kind of a hint because it's the the title topic there um, on that screen. So verse 17, it says, Jesus speaking, to, or God speaking to Adam, it says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou, thou shalt not, what? Eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, brothers and sisters, one other instinct that we didn't quite talk about, but I think you all have, is that instinct to survive. You recognize that you have this instinct to survive. That's, when, that's why if I threw something at you, you'd move your head, because usually uh, something moving at your face can be very bad, and, and bad things can happen. This is why you jump out of the way of cars. This is why small children are naturally afraid of heights. Uh, they did this not-so-nice experiment where they had children crawling across a counter, and then the counter turns into clear glass, and when they got, get out to the clear glass part, they back away. And no one teaches them to do that. They just have the instinct to survive. So here it is that God gives a commandment. And on what level does he appeal for this commandment? You see it there? It says, The day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely what? Die. This commandment was to penetrate all the way down to the nature. Now he's speaking into his hearing. And so obviously you can say that the mind, the thought is involved. You can say that the emotions are involved because God loves them and he's doing these things to love them. But at the end of the day, that commandment is supposed to go all the way down to the to the nature of the instincts there. Notice also this. It says, thou shalt not eat of it. It does not say thou canst not eat of it. Do you all know the difference between shall not and cannot? Yes. What's the difference, brothers and sisters? Choice. Yes. It implies that human beings have a will to exercise. And again, I believe that that is something where God intended the higher nature to order the lower nature and not the other way around. 
Well, let's fast forward our tape. You're there in Genesis. Turn with me or just look with me at Genesis chapter 3, unless you need to turn the page, then you may. And uh, we'll take a look at Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to look at how Satan undoes this perfect unity that man had with God. And over and over again, you're going to see that there seems to be these three components to the self, which really shouldn't surprise anyone, because, by the way, why would there be three components to the self? Anybody want to take a guess? How many people in the Godhead, brothers and sisters? Three. Yes. And who was it that made man in his image? What did it say at the very beginning of that verse? Let us. Mm. Okay. So here we go. So we're there in Genesis chapter 3. Yes? Amen? Amen. And it says in the woman, uh, verse 2, And the woman said unto the serpent, the serpent asked if they're allowed to eat of every tree of the fruit of the garden. It says, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, I want you to notice the way that this impacted Eve. We're going to look at verse 6 here. And it said, Then the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant or desirable to the eyes, and a tree desired to make one wise. Now I want you to notice this here. Now when it talks about the appeal on the level of food, what part of your nature do you think that's speaking to? Does anyone need to train you to want food? No, like that's just something that we kind of naturally go after. So there's this right here, you're talking about on the level of the instincts, or the nature of the person. So it says, she saw it as good food. Then what's the next level we have here? It says that it was pleasant to what? Pleasant to the eyes. It was desirable. There was, a, there was a draw towards this thing. There was an attraction towards this thing. I like to say that in a crude kind of way, this is still in reference to the emotions that desire to have this thing. Then on the last one it says, and it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. Now what level do you think that's on? Yeah, it's probably all the way up there at the top somewhere. That's the thoughts. That's the conscious awareness. It's something that was supposed to expand her mind. Have you ever heard of anything like, hey, if you take this, this will expand your mind? Yes. What are people usually talking about, by the way? Drugs. And you know drugs aren't food, right? But you can convince somebody that they need drugs. And guess which level people get hooked on? To what extent they get hooked on it? It's all the way down to the nature. The very core of their being becomes drawn to this thing because somehow we have convinced ourselves that it's a necessity to life. Now that's really amazing. And here it is, now we're this big tangled mess. Now you'll notice that Satan starts from the outside in and tries to do that undoing of the work, but you'll notice that, that for us now, sin doesn't necessarily come from the outside in. You know Satan doesn't have to come around and, and suggest temptations for you. We know how to come up with our own now, right? And we just come up with our own magic stuff. I mean, we just, we know how to create our own sinful desires and propensities. I mean, we just know how to keep those things going. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul spoke extensively about this. He said, even though with my mind, that it would be way up here, I desire that which is good. But he says he finds another law working in his members. That's his body. That's the lower parts of his nature. And he still finds it coming up. And anybody who's been walking with Jesus for a while, you recognize that you have a nature that just continues to want bad things, no matter how stupid they sound. Yes. So how's God going to undo this? Well, I want to suggest that it starts the same way, uh, uh, the process starts the same way that it started in the beginning there with Satan trying to destroy us. We have to be, that has to be undone in us. And so we're going to take a look at a couple of verses here, and we're going to look at what God does to try to change the nature of human beings. So you're there in Genesis? Turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. And we're still looking at this, we're still looking at this whole idea of looking at the mind itself. Now, when the mind gets focused on something, really amazing things happen with people. And this is perhaps one of the most uh, amazing things that I found in Scripture, um, is, this, is this statement that God makes about the people. And I want you to notice the language they use, because it sounds strikingly similar to the language of creation. So is everybody there in Genesis chapter 11? Alright, perfect. All right, Genesis chapter 11 and verse 1, it says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Which adds a side note. Your language and speech... Both come from the same part of your brain, or both side of your brain, and it's usually the higher parts. This is why animals have a form of communication, but it's nowhere near on the level that we do. 
So nevertheless, this becomes a really important point, that they all had one speech and one language. Verse 2, And it came to pass as they journeyed in the east, that they found a plain, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Verse number 3, And they said one to another, Go to and let us make brick. Now, that's really fascinating to me. And burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make a name, that's one name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And there is a sense in which humanity is trying to fix themselves. They are trying to make themselves one. Now, it's interesting that the world seems to catch on to this so much faster than, the, than our own people do, like within the church. The world seems to be very aware that unity is the only way that they're ever going to get anything done. And then a lot of times we believe that we can go out there a lone ranger within the church context without really getting our brothers and sisters on board with us. And I think that that is an error in thinking. I believe that we are supposed to be unified. That doesn't mean you're supposed to sacrifice principle for unity. But what it does mean is that unity seems to play a tremendous role. All right, is everybody still following? Did I lose anyone? All right. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down uh, to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And, they, and, what they, and this they began to do, and now nothing, nothing will be restrained from them. Now I want you to catch that for a minute. What did God mean when he said nothing will be restrained from them? Yes. They can do whatever they wanted. And, and I believe even to expand upon this thought that when the mind is fully committed to something, nothing is impossible for them. God is actually saying here that it was completely necessary for him to interrupt what they were doing because they would have been successful. Now, I don't understand why God would put so much power into such uh, frail beings, but I know that the source of that power has everything to do with the fact that we were made in his image. Now, I want you to notice how God destroys their plan. In verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one and they are all one language. And it says, Now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. In verse 7, it says, Go to, let us go down and confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the earth, and they left off to build the city. Now, I want you to just picture this in your mind. Here is this group of people and they are all of one language, one accord, one purpose. All their thoughts are on the same level one with another. And when God decided that he was going to destroy their plans, he was able to do it by changing one thing about them. And what was it? He changed their language. Now I'm going to ask you an intuitive question and I want you to give me the best answer that you can. If when you were at your household with your loved ones, whether it's your children, your spouse, your brother, your sister, whomever, if by some chance your spouse suddenly could no longer speak English, only speak uh, you know, Japanese, or only speak sign language, would you then divorce them and never, and never go want to see them again? No, why not? Ah. So there is a level of commitment that was missing from this people. They were all one language, but to unfortunately borrow words that were put into a song that really didn't know what it was talking about, they were not one love. On the level of emotions, they did not find it. Because while they can share an idea, they could not share one heart. They could not share something deeper than just a simple ambition to build. Now, I want to show you something, because I believe that there is a way in which God works with us to change the thoughts. And let's take a look really quickly in Psalm chapter 1. Is everybody still following? Is still making some sense to everyone? Okay, perfect. All right. It seems like there should be some sort of background noise, but maybe I'm just used to having static in my head. So Psalm chapter 1, and we're going to just look at, uh, this is just a wonderful passage. If you don't have this memorized, please commit this to memory. It's a wonderful passage uh, that comes around. So you may wonder why I talked about that wiring, but you'll notice that the wiring that's in the brain connects both from the top to the bottom and from the bottom to the top. And I believe that that's the way our religion really must be. It must go down deep. So how do we get the thoughts to a place where they connect all the way down to the heart? Where I believe that this tells us. Is everybody there in Psalm chapter 1? Alright, it says, Blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. For his delight is where, everyone? The in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. 
and he shall be like a tree planted by what, everyone? The rivers of water uh, that bringeth forth his fruit in season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now, what's really interesting about the wording there is, first of all, how often is he to be meditating upon the word of God? Night and day. Night and day. So what part of the day is he not meditating? None. There isn't any, right? I mean, those are the only two parts of the day you really have, unless you want to break things down into noon and 1 p.m. and all that other stuff. But generally contextualized here, it makes sense that the thoughts are consumed, constantly thinking about God. Now, what I think is neat is there's two things that are put out there. It says that he shall be like a what? A tree. You know what trees have? Roots and branches. I wish I put a picture of a, a neuron up here, but do you know what they have? Yeah, you bet they do. Yes. Which is absolutely fascinating. They have things like, that are like roots and branches. The axon, if you care, uh, the axon is kind of like the root. It's like a long part that strings out and dendrites are like the branches and they connect with each other and do all kinds of wonderful, fabulous things. Now, it's not just that. It goes a little bit further. It says that he should be like a tree planted by what? Rivers of water. You know what the other word there for rivers is? The word there is channels. You know what channels are? They're like paths pathways all over the place. Isn't that amazing? I like the way that God picks his words because he's always right. No matter how much we learn, God still seems to be right. And every flow and current of the thought flows to the same place. And that's to that tree. And from that tree, it flows to the source of the water. And that would be, I believe, the water of life. Every thought he has is connected to God. And so, of course, whatever he does prospers. Of course, whatever he does is fruit. Because all of his thoughts are rooted and channeled towards God. Does that make sense to everyone? The second piece of this is, how does God get us to a place where we think like him? And I wish I could just tell you, it, you know, right up front how that would happen. Well, actually I can. So Psalm chapter 40 and verse, uh, verse 5. Verse 6, I'm sorry. We're going to start with verse 6. This is one of these miracles that I believe that God does. So this is Psalm 40 and verse 6. Is everybody still able to hear me okay? I mean, I'm, just, I'm, I'm going to keep asking that question just because I know that I've heard things and I want to make sure that y'all can hear the things I'm saying. So verse 6. Verse 6. Now we're going to just break this verse down because we're, going to, we're still looking at the idea is how does God capture the thoughts to the extent that he wants to? So first question, how often does God want us to think about him? All the time. All the time. And he wants, that these, he wants these roots to go deep. He does not just want them to just occupy the surface of our thoughts, but he wants them to reach all the way down to the heart. So how is that possible? Verse 6, it says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Now, brothers and sisters, sacrifice and offerings, what part of the service was that uh, for the Old Testament Jews? Yeah, that was like the sanctuary service. That was the day-to-day church service. And I want you to hear exactly what God just said about this. He said, Sacrifice and offerings... What do you say about them? He doesn't, he's not interested. Now, it's not that we shouldn't do sacrifices and offerings. We should still sing songs. We should still come to church and do all the, other, all the other ceremonial type stuff that we do. We really should. It's a part of what we do. But it says, this is not what he desired. But it says, mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings thou hast not required. And verse 7 says, then, lo, I come, uh, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. Verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is where? within my heart. So it goes all the way down there, but I want you to see how it happens. So you're jumping back up there at verse 6. It says, Mine ears hast thou opened. Does anybody say anything different than that? How pierced? Ooh, that's a really good one. Uh, The the, the most generic or most, uh, not surface, the most uh, accepted translation there would be, My ears hast thou digged down. And what it means is to dig until like, you reach the bottom of something. It's like the same term that's used when somebody digs a well. So how far do you dig when you're digging a well? You dig until you hit the water. water. That's right. Does that sound anything like what we read in Psalm 1 that says that he should be like a tree planted by what? Rivers of water. So the roots have to go how far? All the way down to the water, brothers and sisters. And who is it that gets our thoughts to go all the way down to the water, so to speak? That would be God. It says... Mine ears hast thou digged down, or hast thou opened. The only person that will ever get us to a place where the thoughts reach to that kind of level, to that kind of depth, is God. Now, that might seem unfair for God to ask for something like that, but there's a rule I found in the Bible. Whatever God asks from thee, he does himself. Do you want to see that right here in this exact passage that we're reading? 
jump back up to verse 5. This is one of my favorites here. And I don't know if we'll stop here. I think just because of the lateness of the time, I'm going to be respectful. All right. Uh, verse 5. It says, Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done. Now listen to this part. It says, And thy thoughts which are to usward, they cannot be reckoned in order unto thee. Now, first of all, what does that mean that you can't reckon something in order? Right. It's hard to put sense to it. And, and when you talk about this sense of ordering it, you can't tell where they start and where they end. Like, there's no way to organize the, the thoughts that God has towards you. You don't know where they've started, and you don't know where they end. And you know how that happens? There's really only one phenomenon in the world that I can think of that actually allows for something to, to not really have a distinguishable beginning and not have a distinguishable end. And that is things that are eternal or infinite. Now, I could just be making things up, but we haven't finished reading the verse, so let's find out if I'm making things up and if the Bible really says this. It says, if I would declare to speak of them, they are what, brothers and sisters? More than can be numbered. There's only one number that can't be numbered. You know what it is. <laughs> it would be infinity. So just to give you a, a sense of the vastness of infinity, if you took infinity and split it in half, both sides would be infinity. When you count to 6,800,922, you are as far away from infinity as a person who has not started counting. This number, I mean, there's, there's no way to fully conceptualize this number. I mean, you can divide this number by 6 trillion and every single one of the fractions of it will be infinity. Now, where do we bring this back? With God. God never stops thinking about you. Every thought. It's the only unnumberable number is the one that keeps growing. Now one of the things that kind of broke my heart a little bit is I thought about like, well God, is that true even after we die? Is that true even if we don't make it to heaven? And uh, I have reasons to suspect that, um, wow. God is connected to us in a way that, uh, that is hard to explain. But God never stops thinking about you. And do you know what that means that you have from Him? It means that you have His whole self. All of God is invested in you. I pray that we can reciprocate that. Do you think it would be possible for us to allow God to dig down our ears so that every channel, every connection that we have is still connected to Him. Do you think that's possible? We can try. <laughs> yeah, we can try and we can pray for a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> I've tried to dig down the ears of the people that I work with on a daily basis and I've been very futile in my efforts. <laughs> people are stubborn and they always find new reasons to evade personal responsibility if that's what's being talked about or to make excuses for why we don't change. But at the end of the day, our only excuse is that we can't. Is that change in the level that God requires it is a miracle. So, brothers and sisters, how many of our thoughts does God want? All of them. How far down does He want them to go? Well, until it reaches Him, right? And how does that happen? Only by a miracle, yeah. Only by Jesus Christ. Only by Jesus Christ. Hmm. The idea of the whole soul. Okay, we'll give this one a shot. First Kings chapter 19. I hope you all are still praying in your minds. In First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, we are told to pray without ceasing. So I hope that you'll continue to do that for me as I am doing that for you. 1 Kings 19. And we're looking at thy whole soul. We were looking at all the thoughts, thy whole thoughts. And now we're looking at thy whole soul. Now I think I made a, an egregious error and I forgot to tell you where I got these three ideas from. You find these ideas when Jesus was speaking to the lawyer. And, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all... Uh, quote this experience where they, he is asked what is the greatest commandment in the law and brothers and sisters you know what it is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind which is exactly what we're looking at today God asks us to love with three 
And I think it is just, at least as a bare minimum, we can assume that these three parts exist for us. So the mind, really, I believe, captures the thoughts. The soul, brothers and sisters, I believe, captures the life. When we talk about soul, we usually are referring to giving the life. Does that make sense to everyone? And here it is that we're going to read about Elijah. Now, Elijah had been out there preaching, very zealous for the Lord, had been going out there and doing the mighty works of God. He had stood in front of Ahab. He had stood before the prophets of Baal. He had done all the things that God had asked him to do. He spent three and a half years, you know, uh, with, with no rain and all this other stuff going on. And just survived. And by, by hook or crook, this, this man held on to God. And then he reaches the place where, well, like many of us, he stumbles and falls. I want you to see how God persuades him, but we're going to first look at what happened to Elijah. So is everybody there in 1 Kings 19? Yes. We're going to look at verse 2, and it says, Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow. Speaking of the prophets that he had just killed. And when he had saw that, he arose and did what? He ran for his thoughts. No, he ran for his life. Now he's down to the level of the soul. And when he saw that his soul was upon the line, brothers and sisters, he fled. And it wasn't because Elijah was a coward. I mean, the guy was amazing. I mean, he's done more things than I know I've done with my own life. And man, I mean, he spoke more boldly. Has anybody ever went up to President Obama and asked him to change law? <laughs> Would anybody dare to do something the way that uh, Elijah did and expect any kind of results, by the way? So Elijah, when he is persecuted down to this level, he actually runs so he can save his... Life. Now, how does this relate to the emotions and the connections? I want you to look at his justification. Now, Elijah gets to the place, uh, verse 4, I'll just read just uh, verse 4 to you. And he, um, he, he himself, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under the juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my what? My life, for I am not better than my father's. You know, sometimes I'm really glad God doesn't answer our prayers. <laughs> and I'm sure that he was probably glad too afterwards. Sometimes we can get hit with such discouragement. And one of the amazing orchestras that God constantly is playing is the one where he tries to win our hearts, to win our affections, to save our lives. And so God gives Elijah an experience that he's not going to forget. You have to read the rest of it for that. But we're just going to focus on a couple of key verses there. So Elijah gets down to this place and God feeds him and gives him uh, meat and it says that it lasted 40 days off of that meal. Now that's a really good meal. I mean, I've eaten a lot at potluck, but I'm pretty sure it would not last 40 days. But here it is that Elijah is fed with 40 days worth of food and it actually lasts the whole 40 days. Which, by the way, that's not an act of nature. That would be a, a miracle, right? So God sustains Elijah with a miracle, but he wants to get Elijah to the place where he is willing to die for him. And I want you to see the means by which he persuades him. Verse 9. And he came thither to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant and thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And then he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind. We're in verse 11, just in case anybody lost track there. With a great and strong wind, and rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was what? An earthquake. And what does it say there? The Lord was not in the earthquake. Now I want you to get a picture of what's going on here. When you see wind that's blowing so hard and you know that the Lord is passing by and the wind is blowing so hard that it's ripping the mountains apart, how would you imagine that God feels? Now, sometimes we use nature to describe emotion. So how would you imagine that God feels? If he's, yeah, that, would, that, that sounds like anger. And then if there's an earthquake and it's shaking and trembling and everything like that, how might you imagine you, you have that same kind of thing? There's like that. It could be fear, it could be anger, but there's a really intense emotion. And I want you to notice that every time that God seems to manifest himself in this kind of way, it consistently says that God was not in that. That is not how God intended to approach Elijah. And yet I believe in a very significant way that God is allowing Elijah to 
actually see what it is he has come to expect from God. He expects God to take his life, right? I mean, that was his prayer. Lord, please take my life. I'm useless to you. And God shows up in all the ways that could easily destroy him. If the wind could rip the rocks apart, by the way, what do you think it'll do to you, brothers and sisters? Okay, and you all know earthquakes are fatal. That's not surprised anyone. This last one I don't even need to explain because I think you'll catch it. And it says in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire... Fire can destroy you, yes, everyone, yes. You're nodding your heads, don't play with fire, yes. So it says, uh, and then he, came, uh, he was in the fire, but it says, but the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire, what did it say? A still, small voice. A still, small voice. Now, has anybody ever been in an experience where everything was very loud for a long time and then it's poof, silence? What happens to all your senses? Yeah, they all just tune in and then yeah, it's just zoomed in as deep as it can get. And then when God finally has Elijah's attention, does he yell at him? No, it says he speaks to him in a still small voice. And I suspect that this voice was not anything that um, that necessarily reflects what we think of, but I think it was he spoke. He spoke to his soul. Now, why does this become so important that God speaks to his soul? Well, I'll show you two things that I think hopefully can be useful to you. Oh, man, that's really tiny. Can you all read that? Some of you can read it? Okay. In Mark, uh, Matthew, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 36 and 37, you find Jesus speaking to the people, and he had been telling the Pharisees that they were in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, by the way, it seems consistent to me that everywhere you look in Scripture that the Spirit of God speaks to us not in some loud, boisterous voice. In fact, when the Spirit of God is speaking to me, I notice most of you can't hear it. So what does that mean? What kind of voice is he probably speaking in, just based on what we read about Elijah? It's a still, small voice. It's one that is personal and directed towards you. And what he tells the Pharisees is that, look, you know, every sin shall be forgiven, but the sin of blasphemy shall not be blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. Once you get to verse 36, he begins to say something very strange. It says that every idle word that men speak, they shall give an account of for in the judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Now, we don't recognize the power of words, but I found this quote very interesting, and I can tell you that everything that we've studied about the brain actually uh, bears us out. So what it says is closely connected with Christ's warning in regard to sin against the Holy Spirit is a warning against idle and evil words. The words are an indication of that which is in the heart. So it says, out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks, but the words are more than an indication of a character. They have a power to react upon the character. This last sentence is really powerful, and I can tell you that it's true. It says, men are influenced by what? By their own words. Now, you'll notice, well, we didn't read it, but you'll notice that in the story with Elijah, if you go back and read it, he kept repeating this to himself over and over again. That all the prophets are dead, and I'm the only one left. All the prophets are dead. I'm the only one, God. I'm just the only one. He keeps repeating this thing to himself over and over again. And here it is that God comes in with that still, small voice to speak to his heart so that his life might be more committed to him. Now, one wonderful place that you'll see what is required for God to truly reach us in this way is Mark chapter 5. After that, I think we're going to refrain. Mark chapter 5. And when you get there, go ahead and say amen. amen. Mark chapter 5. So Matthew, then Mark in the New Testament. Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And when you get there, go ahead and say amen. amen. Now, we're just going to read a couple of verses, uh, the first three verses, then we're going to jump around so that we can, you know, get to the point and find out how it is that God gets us to a place where we commit our whole lives to him. Now, uh, it says in Mark chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, And they came over to the other side of the sea unto the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with what? An unclean spirit. And it says, because that he had, um, excuse me, who had his dwelling amongst the tombs, and no man can bind him, no, not with chains. And because he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and his fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. Now, I want you just to catch something. In what condition is this man? Well, he's crying. He's cutting himself. He's gotten to the place 
where no man can bind him. Now I want you to note what that probably means. If, if no man can bind him and no one can tame him and he's laying in the, in the tombs and the rocks and caves, how many people does he get to be around? None. Zero. He is completely isolated. He is completely isolated. You know what that does to your emotions, by the way? <laughs> the crying and cutting himself, I don't think is just a phenomenon of demons uh, torturing him. I think the idea of crying and cutting himself is that as a result of being emotionally isolated. Yeah, you want to feel something. Thank you. His feelings are turned off. Now, he still has his thoughts, I suppose. I mean, he could have a few thoughts going on. But brothers and sisters, that is like the worst form of torture. There's, uh, unfortunately, disorders that happened uh, that, that disrupt a, a person's ability to communicate and speak. There was a gentleman who um, had caught a disease similar to meningitis, and it had riddled his entire body, and he got to the place where he just was staring still. He could not move his eyes back and forth. He could not move his body. But guess what he could do? He can hear everything. He can feel everything. He can taste everything, and he can touch anything that touched him. But he couldn't let anybody know now you can imagine what this was like. I mean, his parents thought that he was dead and that he had totally disappeared. He got to the place where he was just in this total darkness. He talked about how he wanted to die, but he couldn't move because his body wouldn't listen to him anymore. It's completely non-cooperative. I mean, could you imagine the disaster of being completely conscious of everything around you but not being able to affect any of it? I mean, if you wanted to cry, he can't make the lacrimal glands in his eyes activate and begin to have tears. He could just sit here and think about what it's like to cry. Unfortunately, while he was in this particular comatose state, after six years of taking care of him, his mom leaned over him and told him, I hope you die. And she did not say that in like the way like she was mad at him. She wanted him to be free of this thing. And she wanted to be free of having to care for him. Now, by the way, that man's story actually ends well. It ends a lot like the one that you're going to find here. Verse 8. Mark chapter 5 and verse 8. Is everybody there? So when Jesus came, it says that, uh, well, let me read verse 6. It says, but when he saw Jesus, the man that was crying and cutting himself, afar off, he ran and did what? He worshipped him. Now, I'm going to skip the part where the demons talk because it's, to me it's not as relevant as the fact that the man, as soon as he saw Jesus, he ran to him. Brothers and sisters, if there's ever going to be a place where we get to the place where we can commit our lives to God, where we can finally free ourselves of this prison that we're in that I call sin, that has all of our emotions bound up and causes us to want to hurt and destroy ourselves, there's only one person you can run to for safety. And who is that, brothers and sisters? Jesus. Jesus. And I want you to notice what he responds with. It says, For he said unto him, speaking unto the man, it says, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. Now, I like the fact right here that it does not say anything about him shouting at the man. I don't suspect that he did. Now, the demons shouted back at Jesus, but I don't have any suspicion whatsoever that Jesus was shouting at them. Do you follow that? Jesus speaks with that word, with that, what I would believe would be that still small voice. The disciples don't seem to be anywhere to be found, so this is just between him and the man there. And Jesus speaks. Now, you all know the rest of the story. The demons come out of the man. And look at verse... 18, verse 18. Actually, verse 15. Let's look at verse 15. Is everybody still there in verse 15? Yeah. Apologize for that bait and switch there. Verse 15, it says, And they come to Jesus and see him who was possessed with the devil and had a legion sitting and clothed in what state of mind? Right. In his right mind, and they were afraid. Brothers and sisters, this man finally was able to come back. He was finally able to have his own, his own mental faculties. And, and where did he decide, who did he decide he wanted to connect himself with? With Jesus. He completely wanted to connect himself with Jesus. Because Jesus had won him, not just on the level of his thoughts, but on the level of his whole, his, his soul, if you will. What proof do I have for that? Look at verse 19. Now the man that was possessed came to be with him. Verse 18, excuse me. And it says, when he was coming to the ship, speaking of uh, 
when Jesus was come unto the ship, it said that he, had been, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, and saith unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. And he departed, and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. Now, I want you to notice that these men, when they saw what Jesus had done, they kicked him out. They did not want to have want to have anything to do with him. And so you might imagine that if this man goes around promoting the man that everybody seems to have some disdain for, that he can be putting his life in jeopardy. But do you think he cared? No. Why did he not care anymore? What had Jesus done? Freed him. Yeah, he had freed him. He had freed his soul. So he was willing to give his soul. We serve a good God, don't we? Now, just so I don't leave you hanging in suspense, that man that, uh, that was trapped in that prison, something had happened where suddenly he was able to start regaining some of his consciousness and began to communicate with the outside world. And he actually tells his own story. It's in a very robotic voice because his body has been pretty well hindered and crippled by that many years. It was 12 years, by the way, of not being able to speak and let anybody know that you're alive. Wow. But guess what? When he was able to speak, do you think his first instinct was to want to kill himself? No, brothers and sisters, as soon as he had a taste for life, he lived it for the things that mattered. And brothers and sisters, I believe that as soon as you have a taste of life as God has ordained for you, then you will find yourself running towards what matters. That man did not go back to his job. He went to do what Christ called him to do. And he was satisfied with that. So, there is a final point here. But what I'd like to do is to continue this thought another time. But I really want to invite you, brothers and sisters, to consider what it would mean to have a whole-souled religion with God. To allow Christ to be more than just a part of your ideas in the context of your thoughts. That, that you don't just have a commitment that changes based on the place that you're in. Well, when we come to church, we talk this way, but then when we're around our friends, we talk another way because we're designed to win their approval. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we can be people who the Lord opens our ears. I also have this prayer that we never get to the place where we're so discouraged when we see that our actions are not in line with our ideas that we desire to want to end our lives, whether we're talking about our lives in this world or the lives of our spiritual lives, because many people will leave God because they believe they're not good enough. And eventually that eventually turns into blaming God, by the way, because first it's I'm not good enough, and then there's you didn't really do anything to help me. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for you is that you would consider Allowing God not to take your life, but to save your life. Because a life saved is a life worth living, brothers and sisters. And that salvation is every bit of miracle at your creation. Now I'm going to go ahead and skip to our closing song and we can see if we can do it today. Um, I have the words up there, but if we have to switch it, we can. But we'll try to see if we can sing our closing song, which is uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Does anybody know that one? Uh, all right, so this will be a surprise to everyone. So I will try to sing uh, as best as my terrible...